Hi, Amy. Hi, Zaf. Good to see you. Good to see you. And here we are at the gates of the Bronte Parsonage Museum. Thanks for coming and meeting me. I know, it's really good to be here. Thanks for having me. It was lovely walking up through the streets of Haworth, which is very well-preserved town, the cobbles and the little shops and, and, the, and the rain. Although, yeah, it's, it's funny, it's brightened up now. Oh, look, here's someone letting us in the gate. Hello, welcome to the Parsonage. Hello, Nicola. We have our National Art Passes here. Oh, great. So with the National Art Pass, you get free entry to the museum. So I'll just take that from great. you and sort of tick it out for you. Mm-hmm. There we go. Thank you. So enjoy the museum. So it's just down the cobbles and then into the garden where a colleague will meet you. All right, great. Thank you. Enjoy your visit. Thank you. Bye. Hello, I'm Amy Liptrot, a writer here at the Bronte Parsonage in Haworth. I'm Amy's friend and fellow writer, Zafa Kunyal, and this is... Three, two, one... Meet Meet me me at at the the museum. museum. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) It's amazing that we have this place near to where we live, which is the real-life childhood home and writing place of these artists. That's why I'm pleased to be back here. How about you? What what does it mean to you to be here? Um, yeah, yeah, it's a bit miraculous place, I think, isn't it, where, where these sisters wrote their novels, you know, and all around the same table, and it, it does feel like really magical to live near this place and the landscape as well. And yeah, it's about six miles away, isn't it, from from mm-hmm. where we live. It's a place that's kind of haunted by the people that have written about it, and it's known as Bronte Land, isn't it, the, the whole area. And mm-hmm. so that yeah, it's. Um, I think we first met, you were one of the first people that I met when I moved to Hebden six years ago, introduced by writer friends. Yes, yeah, yeah. like Benjamin Myers and Adele Stripe. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember it felt like quite a temporary move or, or a tentative move when you first came here. Yes, I wasn't sure how long I was going to be there for, but six years later I'm still yeah. in town. Yeah, here we are just in the actual front door of the parsonage which is a bit of an elevated position over the town of Haworth right next to the church and the graveyard and then with just a little glimpse of the hills and and trees beyond it's really kind of like this spooled out view of society in a way so kind of with this elevated position over the town maybe could give you confidence as a inventor of worlds and a novelist to kind of think you can understand and see and paint a picture of society i don't know if that's going too far but there's just something about the the height and the viewpoint up here i don't know but it's amazing that the, the door is straight straight to the um the, the church the church and that i think was where charlotte taught for a bit a little and then school. i was reading that it was possibly that because the water that they were drinking was contaminated right. coming through the that's graveyard right. that's right yeah so yeah it's quite grim really isn't it, it really? awful yeah, yeah one way of looking at Emily Bronte's as a bit of a goth, like of her time so hanging around in graveyards and with that kind of sense of the presence of death I suppose and the attraction towards the extremes and they're, they're not straight up are they the, the tombstones, they, they kind of lean and mm-hmm. as though they're, they're kind of in motion almost and just slow down this museum you know is, is a fascinating place but you've got the landscape around it and and you can't divide the two from the way they wrote, that the being inside a lot, but also being outside a lot. And, and so I quite, quite like this door. Let's go in. 
so we're in the in the hallway with Mr. Bronte's study to the right and the dining room to the left. And this is the room that we particularly wanted to have a look at, isn't it? It's after the dining yeah. room. Should we go in? Yeah, so this has the, the writing table bang in the middle of the room um, and space to walk around it, which apparently they did um, as they were writing and sharing their words to each other. It's a drop-leaf table, isn't it, of some variety? Mm -hmm. It's truly amazing that this is the actual table that, that all these things were written at and where they lived and that it's been preserved. <laughs> but it's also just making me think of my places where I've written, like the kitchen table where I wrote my first book, The Outrun, and I had my fireplace and my laptop and the little kind of triangle that I did standing up and tending yeah. to the fire and this this kind of um, circuit that I trod while writing the book. And, um, and did you walk around the table? <laughs> I walked back and forth to the fire, but I can I can sort of see how that bit of walking might help with the cogs turning in the brain. Where do you tend to write? At home? Uh, no, I have a, a little one-bed flat and there isn't anywhere I particularly want to write at home so I'll often go out and uh, it'll be a cafe or somewhere like that um, but I don't like the idea of have, having a place where I'm meant to write it feels mm -hmm. like it puts pressure on me mm -hmm. so you don't have your your parsonage dining room no I don't have I don't have room for that table mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, I would like to I imagine that they also discussed between each other what they were writing or they they read aloud mm -hmm. um of their own work and from the others' work. Yeah, there, there can't, can't be many tables that, that were, where three separate novelists wrote their best work at. I mean, mm. maybe we should we should touch it for luck or something. Yeah, it it gets, some of the magic might rub off on us. Not allowed, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's just amazing that three siblings of the same family yeah. would all have such talent and produce these fully formed novels and works of literature. Yeah, I mean, and not in London or anywhere like that, but, you know, quite out of the way and in, in this kind of remote place in the hills. And girls. Yeah. And, you know, with a fairly limited life and outlook. And it meant to be Branwell Bronte. Of yeah, that would have been the expectation, wouldn't it? He was a, a student of the Royal Academy of Arts in London and the, the ambitions were kind of on, on him. Uh, and he wasn't untalented, but he didn't either have the extreme talent or the application of his sisters. Mm. And that's the, the, is that the couch that Emily died on? Um, yeah, it's, it's quite something, isn't it? Yeah, it, it looks far too new, really, for her uh, to have died on it. Yeah, it was 150 years ago, something like that. Well... Yeah, that's no, very moving. Yeah. And just the presence of death everywhere with the graveyard outside and then the family lost their mother and their two oldest sisters in their childhood and then none of the rest of them lived to a very great age. So, I mean, huge it's, tragedy and, and loss surrounding these, these short lives. Yeah, but it's, it's also a really bright room, isn't it? it mm -hmm. Actually, you know, it doesn't feel like a kind of musty fusty old room it, it, it lets a lot of light in and you can really you know you, uh, there's big landscapes outside and the, 
the, the church and the graveyard, but there's a lot, a lot of light as well, isn't there? And kind of wind and things to things to kind of take you outside and call you outside. Yeah, I think a very key thing about being a novelist is actually writing the novel and getting it done and getting it finished. And and there's the talent and there's the inspiration, but there's the the commitment and the and the work is just a greater part of it. You know, I've written two books now and. I think lots of other people could have written those books, but it's just a matter of actually having done it. Um, but then there's a lot, a very time-consuming process that I have developed, which comes after that stage and in the edit and in the combining of, of notes. And um, When you're in the middle of something, w- w- would it be good for you to have like someone like a sister asking you what's going on or would that, <clears> would that, would that be annoying? I think having sort of peers... Or other people maybe doing similar things that make it seem possible or uh, are inspiring or even slightly an element of um, competitiveness or healthy kind of uh, inspiration. And I think that's useful to me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so a creative peer group and probably having it as your siblings might the probably the competitiveness is is amplified yeah. I can only imagine yeah it does help to see people doing things and chat in the cafe about how it's going even though it might be working in a completely different way and if I have one poem a month that's a good month and mm-hmm. yeah it's good to see other people to, doing well and although talking about that I think so their first book here was I think Charlotte brought together their poems and apparently that book sold two copies which even for poetry is not it's not very <laughs> right. very good. Yeah. <laughs> so it had as many authors as readers. Yeah. So we've been welcomed here by Anne into the library at the Parsonage, and I think we're going to look at some reviews of the Bronte's novels of, of the time. Uh, I'm Anne Dinsdale, and I'm the principal curator here. So we're going to talk about and look at some of the reviews of the Bronte novels, Charlotte's Jane Eyre, Emily's Wuthering Heights, and Anne's Agnes Grey. And these are the early reviews that um, appeared in 1847 when the novels were first published. Thank you. The reviews of Jane Eyre are amazingly good. Everybody loved Jane Eyre. It was an overnight sensation. Mm -hmm. And then three months down the line, Wuthering Heights was published and people were quite shocked Mm -hmm. by Emily's novel. We've got a selection of reviews here that were found after her death stored away in her writing desk. They, They tend to acknowledge the power and the originality of Emily's writing, but people are at a loss to know what to make of Emily's novel. Those are the actual copies that she she, she would have read. Yeah, I mean, there's an idea that she wasn't interested Mm -hmm. in what the public felt about her work, but clearly she was because, you know, she actually preserved... Yeah, that's um, so Yeah, yeah. It must have been amazing for her to be in the world in that way, you know, having spent most of the time here and doing all the writing here and yeah. suddenly to get this feedback from, from newspapers. Yeah. And what a thing. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you look at this particular review, which yeah. was in the Atlas for 1847, the reviewer writes, Wuthering Heights is a strange, inartistic story. There are evidences in every chapter of a sort of rugged power 
the general effect is inexpressibly painful. We know nothing in the whole range of our fictitious literature which presents such shocking pictures of the worst forms of humanity. So they're all kind of focused on how brutal and violent the novel is and that it's... It's evidently written by an author of great talent, but someone who doesn't actually know what to do with mm-hmm. that talent. You know, we can look at it now and think, in artistic, you know, it was very wrong. Yes, they're not crediting mm. her with the intention and control. But also the things that we might see now as the strengths of the novel are characterised as, as its problems at, at that yeah. point. Yeah. But amazing that it says here, I mean, I can't imagine what she would have felt when she read this particular page, but yeah, the, the, the general effect is inexpressibly painful. But in a way, that's also powerful, isn't mm-hmm. it? And it says it, it evidences in every chapter a sort of rugged power. That's exactly what this landscape is, isn't it? It's kind of rugged power. And, and now you look at that and you think, mm. God, that's amazing, really. It, it shows the, the power of this book, that it yeah. created that kind of response. And in a way, it, it, you almost want that review rather than the kind of Jane Eyre type of review because it, it, it speaks of something that they couldn't quite handle. It was almost electric, yeah. electricity that they didn't know what to deal with. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that sort of sums it up, really. Women readers are advised not to read Wuthering Heights. Because yeah. I, I remember once seeing, seeing you in, in a cafe in Hebden Bridge saying that you'd had a review, I think, of the incident that, that maybe wasn't getting it. Yes, I know how it feels to be... Uh, well, firstly, to go from working kind of alone and uh, unrecognised to, to being reviewed in the national papers and and the kind of shift in kind of sense of identity that, that that brings and must have brought for them, even though they were under pseudonyms, at least they, they knew themselves that it, was, that it was their work that was yeah, suddenly yeah. out there. And then my most recent book has been, the reviews have been more, more divisive, more, more different and... I have been frustrated with uh, reviews that have mentioned weaknesses in the books but not understood that those things are actually intentionally in there. And I imagine that Emily must have felt all sorts of anger towards them actually reading this, I imagine. It's interesting that the Brontes did write under assumed names, Curra, Ellis and Acton Bell, with each sister Mm -hmm. retaining their own initials. And the names were deliberately picked to be quite androgynous mm. sounding. Was it assumed that they were men or there was, um, some, there was discussion the, I about think, it? I think there was a lot of discussion. I think because of the, the way they wrote, the powerful kind of originality of it was assumed to be a sort of a male characteristic. Mm-hmm. The Brontes recognised um, that there was a double standard in the way books were reviewed at the time and they hoped to avoid that and be judged on their merits but it actually backfired on them and it became you know, one of the big topics as to whether these books are written by men or women. And when they found out that Emily was a clergyman's daughter, was that worse? <laughs> well by the time that information became public Emily was actually already dead she never really experienced celebrity in the way that Charlotte did you know Charlotte lived that few years longer unfortunately for Anne her first novel Agnes Grey was published in part of a three-volume set with 
Emily's Wuthering Heights. Um, because of the nature of Wuthering Heights, Agnes Grey was almost completely overlooked. That situation changed with Anne's second novel, The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which attracted quite scandalous reviews you know it shows again the worst kind of forms of humanity you know there's a lot of abuse of wives alcoholism in the novel again young ladies are advised not to read it so she certainly got the reviews for the tenant of wildfell hall it's so interesting to me that these papers were were kept among emily's papers and that they were obviously important to her and and she read them and i'm i'm actually pleased that she got to see that recognition and that publication and it must have been a real bolt to see this though you know mm. and the, the, the paper seems to be called the atlas and it must have felt like the world suddenly mm-hmm. talking back to her and you know in quite a shocking way you know from, from this small place here mm-hmm. and then getting this reverberation and just shortly after seeing the the great success of your of your sister as well yeah, yeah it's amazing i wonder if the critics that they really respected were each other Oh, definitely, definitely. That's what writing friends, I suppose, are are for. You know, they know you better and they know your work better, and they see how the flaws are part of what what you're doing. Oh, thank you, amazing. Thank you, thank you. And then this takes us through into the museum. It's part of the parsonage, but it's now set out like a, mu- a museum with glass cases, with artefacts and, and information panels and, and paintings on, on the walls. Yeah. Ah, so it's coming back to me, I remember. And that those are the little, little books that, that, that Charlotte and did for the, for the toy soldiers. Oh, all oh, right. Tiny little books. From their childhood story making yeah and, and with very very tiny writing that you can read through a magnifying glass but yeah just a bit bigger than a matchbox okay yeah so they were that was their training there i really like what it says sold by nobody and printed by herself <laughs> um, and, they've, and they've got random full stops in it so sold full stop by nobody full stop and printed full stop by herself. I like that as a kind of statement of artistic purity, yeah. sold by nobody and printed by herself. Yeah, yeah and they kind of, they, they look like butterflies almost, don't they? But, but rectangular butterflies with open wings, these little books. From 1829, so they would have been girls. Yeah, it's lovely to see them here where, where they were written. Um, and amazing that this place, you know, they, they grew up here and they wrote here and, and they're buried here apart from Anne. And it's all also contained in like these little books. It feels like, yeah, in this place so much of them is held. And it's unusual, I think, to get a, a writer's house that where they, they, their whole life was here, really. And lovely to see that they were making toy books as, as children and then yeah. wrote these real books that were, were published by, not by nobody. Oh, were these the, um, were these the little things that, that Anne Bronte found on the beach in Scarborough? Oh, yes, they look like pebbles. Yeah, uh, Anne Bronte's collection of pebbles. A little tray of these um, different kind of orange, peachy, opal-coloured uh, pebbles. 
Yeah, really moving to, to see them and that Patrick would have kept them. And quite, quite a, it's still um, something of a journey to get to the coast for, from here, so it, is, it would have yeah. been a bit of an undertaking. Yeah, yeah and, and really moving that, that, that she died in Scarborough and, and that these are pebbles that she, and things that she picked up on the beach and, and whatever drew her to go to Scarborough when she was ill. And these tiny little shiny th- things that she wanted to keep. And yeah, her, her mum was from Cornwall, there was something. And, and Dad was from Ireland, so yeah. they weren't natively of, of Yorkshire, of this place, which is quite interesting and maybe more unusual at the time to, to yeah. be... We'd have marked them out as quite different, would it? Yeah, I, I do wonder whether we carry landscapes inside us and whether, whether we know it or not, whether there, she would have had an attraction to maybe the coast or something and th- this mum that she didn't know because she died of cancer when she was young... And whether that pulled her... She might have associated the coast with her mum. Yeah, m- m- maybe subconsciously, maybe the rhythm of the coast or something. This is very inland here, isn't it? And the nearest thing you get to the sea is the wind, but it has no tide. Yeah, we're, we're right in the middle of the country here. We're talking about carrying landscapes with us. I've moved to the north of England, which is where my family are from, historically, yeah. going, going back some generations. So I've kind yeah. of returned to... Landscapes that have been carried uh, generationally yeah, you, in me. And, and you grew up in, on an island which was remote in a different way from the way this is remote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this isn't no <laughs> in my no. mind. Yeah, because I suppose people will think of you as a very Orcadian person because you're, you know, one of Orkney's well-known writers now and... Yeah, but as we've established, you are more Orcadian than, than I am. You've seen my ancestry yeah, we d- were, d- DNA profile. We, disc- we both, we both um, <laughs> sent off our spit to uh, Ancestry.com and uh, had these uh, ethnicity. And then yours is much more uh, exciting because, well, of course, your dad's from uh, India. Ca- and, from Kashmir. Yeah. And, yeah and, so, yeah, I, I got 50% Europe, 50% Asia. And, mm-hmm. and you've got an ancestor from Orkney. But, you know, it's funny looking again at these little shiny pebbles and how, how, how these things are landscapes, aren't they? Tiny stones uh, are landscapes that we put in our pocket and bring back with us. So here we are in Charlotte's bedroom, which no longer has a bed in it, but has a big glass case right in the middle of the room with a big dress. Kind of a big dress, but for a small person. Yeah, the size of that waist and the height is pretty tiny, but the skirt is a a full skirt. Yeah, but very elegant sleeves. It looks like a posh dress. Yeah. Yes, it's uh, formal and shiny with this uh, slightly sheeny... Uh, light bruise, slight material and um, artificial uh, roses down the middle. Hello. Oh, look, we were just wondering about where this dress might have been worn and for a bit more information about it, so Rebecca here might be able to help us. Well, I'll do my best. My name is Rebecca York and I'm the director of the Bronte Parsonage Museum in Haworth. We've had this dress in our collection for quite some time, actually, but never had the confidence to display it before because we weren't really quite sure of the provenance. Um, We've been working with a researcher and a costume historian called Dr Eleanor Houghton, whose research has proved actually it probably was worn by Charlotte when she was 
going down to London after she was a bit more successful and she wanted to fit in you know with the people that she was um, socializing with it's very beautiful isn't it it's striped silk and the, I love the, the tassel details on it but you can see as well from the dress how petite Charlotte was mm. we're delighted to have it on display at the moment yeah that's what we thought it was quite a uh, posh dress, so it wouldn't have been everyday wear for around in, in Haworth then? No, I think when she was, you know, established as a writer, mm. um, and I think we understand that she had been um, down to London and felt that people were looking at her because she perhaps wasn't dressed appropriately, mm. so it would have really mattered to her mm. to fit in and, you know, and, and have the appropriate attire for the status that she'd you know, found herself in. <laughs> would you wear something like that when you go to your publishers or you, well you... yeah um my london dress yeah take off my my wellies and my uh <laughs> my mud-stained uh, clothes and uh, <laughs> put something fancy on yeah it would be a different version but i i know that kind of having city clothes sort of uh yeah, and having to dress up for special occasions mm. and, you know, and going to awards, you know, and, and getting recognised. You need different clothes for that, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> I'm glad that Charlotte had that opportunity. Yeah, um, yeah actually, it looks, looks amazing, doesn't it? It look, looks really special. You'd really notice mm. someone walking into the room wearing that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And have you seen, um, in the cabinet behind you, the lovely display of bonnets we have? Mm-hmm. Um, this exhibition that's on at the moment, Defying Expectations, has been co-curated with Dr Houghton and, you know, sets out to explain that Charlotte and Jane Eyre were not the same in terms of clothes and dress. You know, Charlotte had quite an interest in, in what other people were wearing and, and, you know, these bonnets are really quite splendid. But one of the things that a lot of our visitors really like is that um, wedding bonnet there on display. Which one is that? So this one here on the um, left-hand side, Charlotte wore on her wedding day in June 1854. You know, apparently the villagers said that she looked like a little snowdrop. And you can see this beautiful bonnet and she was quite small. You know, and, and very sadly, you know, Charlotte died um, just less than a year later and she was you know, pregnant when she died. But it's, got, it's got nature on it, hasn't it? Little flowers and... Um, Buds. Yeah, mm. the, the laces may be greyed a little bit, and giving it that slightly nested look. No, really amazing to see, see the bonnets. Yeah, you can really. We were saying earlier, it was like you can imagine them sitting in the church and kind of using the the kind of side parts of the bonnet to cover their faces and make funny faces and things. <laughs> it gives you a bit of privacy, doesn't it? Absolutely. And as well as being for sort of modesty and respectability, they've got quite a practical purpose for keeping the wind out and keeping mm. you warm. And, well, you need uh, that round here. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're going to start wearing a bonnet in Hebden Bridge? I think, I, should, I think we should bring the bonnet back, yeah. <laughs> yeah, especially with these long face bits. Yeah. yeah. It's like, like the old Parker coats that I used to wear in, in Birmingham, uh-huh. where you'd, you'd oh, yeah. zip it all the way up. Uh-huh. It's like that's the equivalent of that. We were, I remember having a school assembly on how you should, you should, you should undo the zip when you're crossing the road. Because <laughs> it could <laughs> be all, all, right, all, it can be quite dangerous. All, yeah. mm. all these little brummy kids with their Can't zip see left and right. <laughs> <laughs> We've come out of the museum now, and we're uh, heading around the corner up a path, and seeing a bit more sky and a bit of some rocky crags and some dry stone dikes crunching through some leaves and we've come to Parsons Field which would have been part of the the property small field surrounded by stone walls uh, on a slight slope 
heading up towards the moor. It's all kind of slopey, isn't it? There's nothing, nothing flat at all, is there? Yeah, there's the valleys, there's the landscapes around here, so yeah, not the easiest farming environment. There's a stone up there with a ah. poem by Jackie Kay, which is beautiful. And it's interesting, you have to walk all the way around the stone to okay. read it. A big slab of stone. These dark, sober clothes are my disguise. No, I was not preparing for an early death, yours or mine. You got me all wrong, all the time. But sisters, I'll have the last word. Write the last line. I am still at sea, but if I can do some good in this world, I will right the wrong. I am still young, and the moor's winds lift my light, my light dark hair. I am still here when the sun goes up, and here when the moon drops down. I do not now stand alone. So that's Anne Bronte, isn't it? The eye is Anne. I think so. I'm still at sea. So she was buried out in Scarborough, oh, right. wasn't she? So it's sort of bringing a way of bringing her back. I think so. To her sisters. And if I can do some good in this world, so because her her novels were more kind of you know focused on social wrongs and ah. social realism, and and it's a lovely spot for it. I like that you can see all the different elements that, that characterise the landscape around here, which are these sort of nestled towns, you know, down lower in the valley. And then you have these woods uh, that go up the hill and then all the way up to, to the moors uh, on the tops, as, as we call it. So you can see some heather from here and some rocky outcrops. And it's very important to me to get up out of the shadow of the valley as often as I can and uh, get the light and get up onto the moor. Um, where you have these uh, unrestricted horizons. Why, why do you think this part of the world has been inspiring for so many writers? I'm not really sure. I, I, I've never felt particularly at home here, mm. um, but then that, that maybe, I wouldn't say it inspired me, but mm. maybe it, it, it helped me to write in a weird way. Um, this, 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 I don't know, it, this slightly keeps you out, this landscape. It's not, it's not a lush kind of landscape, is it? And it's been a working landscape, an industrial and now a post-industrial uh, place. And in the winters, as we know, it can be pretty bleak and pretty damp and dingy. Uh, yeah, and it, it does feel like it kind of closes in a little bit, like almost an inland island or something. Like it, you, you're almost not aware of the bits around it. It feels like it's locked itself in. It, yeah, there's, there's something insular about it. Got to bust out onto the M62 once in a while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Get the train to Halifax, right lights. Yeah. Todmorden even. Oh. <laughs> into Lancashire. Be <laughs> careful. Yeah. But yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily feel like I could kind of um, enter the landscape through words. Really, uh, it feels too big for that. I could have to enter into into in small ways. Okay. I think. Yes. Yeah, quite often your poems look at a detail, don't they, as the as a kind of starting point. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I also think that the big things are in little things, and 
I think there's a lot of that around here and the Bronte sisters seem to be a good example of kind of, you know, um, if like smallness and bigness coexisting, but both physically as people being physically small, but, but you know, going out into the world in such a big way. And I just say, I think it's interesting, this position where they grew up sort of halfway up the hill and it's kind of looking down to human society and civilization of the town and then looking up to the sort of wildness of, of the moors and the natural world and you can see both of those concerns in the work and yeah it's probably a gift to a writer to be in this location I think and have those connections to uh, the oversight and then the yeah just the physical kind of experience of it and how that's manifested in their writing is I feel like I can sense it a bit more by being in this actual geographical location yeah also maybe the joy that they took in it as well you know despite all the all the tragedy that was happening around them and that there was a kind of freedom here for them That's us just about finished for today. How have you found it? It was very lovely to be here with you, Amy. Thank you for inviting me here. Yeah, it's always always a bit different every time I've been back. It's been lovely to visit again with a little bit more focus than last time. And I think I just feel more connected to these writers. I, I like to see them as neighbours or colleagues or but from the past, but we, we can be... Uh, connected through sitting in the same rooms and thinking of them as living, breathing people rather than historical kind of images. I loved seeing that the reviews of Wuthering Heights were actually from Emily's personal papers and that she'd kept them squirrelled away. I think that tells me quite a lot about her and makes me relate to her as as a writer and human being. She did, she did care about the reviews. Absolutely. Amazing to see and hold the actual page that she... Because if it was a photocopy, it wouldn't have quite have been the same. Mm-hmm. And, and to see, you know, how she'd cut it out. And there's an energy to that. There's an energy to it being cut out. And, yeah, and the, the, the light would have fallen on that same page from, an, you know, a long time ago. And that would have been the first time she read those words which would have really affected her mm. where the world was suddenly coming back to her and telling her about what she'd written. I think the first time I had some feedback about my first book and I can still remember the room that I was in how I where how I kind of stood up and it's just kind of like seared on my memory so it's so such a huge thing yeah. the kind of first feedback that you get from the world about yeah. about a book. I do wonder how much they, they wrote for each other as well mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and whether like more and more it made me think that they were their ultimate critics and that they, they spurred each other on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I wonder if that, that was what they really wanted, was to, was to prove themselves to each other. And I'm full of respect and I'm inspired by the fact that they managed to produce under conditions where it wasn't the done thing for women, where they'd had such uh, loss and tragedy in their lives where they had other duties that they were expected to carry out. You know, if, if, it really inspires me to, to find time in my life to write and to, to pursue that kind of a... pursue it, whatever the circumstances, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, have, I have 
actually written some poems about the Brontes and yeah, and I, th- I think I was right to. Uh, I can see how how it's part of the landscape here, and it's almost like visiting two communities that are coexisting almost. You know, their own community around the table in the dining room, and the kind of community that we see around bumping into each other in cafes and things like that. Thanks for listening to Meet Me at the Museum. With me, Amy Liptrot. And me, Zafa Kunyol, here at the Bronte Parsonage. If you like this episode of the podcast, please tell a friend or leave a review. And don't forget, you can show your love for museums with a National Art Pass. It gives you great benefits at hundreds of venues while raising money to support them. 